Welcome to the award-winning Thoughts from a Page podcast, a member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network, hosted by me, Cindy Burnett, a voracious reader and book columnist who provides you with engaging author conversations and book recommendation episodes, as well as insider information on all of the newest releases that I personally endorse and on the publishing industry in my behind-the-scenes series. With so many books coming out weekly, it can be hard to decide what to read, so I find the best ones and share them with you. For more book recommendations and to find my backlist of interviews, visit my website at thoughtsfromapage.com. If you are interested in accessing unique bonus content, I hope you will consider joining my Patreon group. I offer two levels, Page Turners, which includes my popular Early Reads program, where patrons have access to monthly early digital reads through NetGalley, and exclusive pre-publication author chats, as well as regular bonus episodes and fun surprise content. My second level is Lit Lovers, which includes all of the page turner benefits, as well as my Traveling Galley program, where patrons can read at least three to four new titles a month that are in print galley form and are passed along to other members. One of July's selections is the new William Kent Kruger book, The River We Remember. In addition, there are two monthly episodes, fiction-nonfiction pairings, and spoiler-filled interviews with three authors. The link to join is in my show notes. Today, I am chatting with Pip Williams about her fabulous new book, The Bookbinder. Pip was born in London, grew up in Sydney, and now lives in Australia's Adelaide Hills. Her debut novel, The Dictionary of Lost Words, was a New York Times bestseller and a Reese's Book Club pick. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Hello, and welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book, and together, we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. Our ninth season is coming this fall. Tune in to hear from some of the all-time great authors, Charles Dickens, Jules Verne, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and more. Subscribe to Novel Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome, Pip. How are you today? I'm very well, Cindy. How are you? I'm very well as well. And I'm thrilled to pieces that we are getting to talk because I absolutely loved the book binder and I have so many questions for you. Oh, thank you. And it's just such a pleasure to be here. Well, and this is kind of fun because you're in Australia and I'm in Texas. So we had to find a time that worked for both of us. So for me, it's 7 p.m. And for you, it's 9.30 in the morning, correct? That's right. And it's a beautiful sunny day in Adelaide, but it probably won't be as warm here as it is where you are. (laughs) It has been so warm this summer, the warmest I can ever remember. So yes, sadly, it is awfully hot here. Yeah, no, we're 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 in the middle of winter, uh, which is still quite nice. It's about seventeen degrees Celsius here today, so not not bad for winter. Well, and you mentioned being on the other side of the planet and below the equator, so that we're on total flip sides. I was so interested with respect to that that your book has already come out too, talking about things that are different. So here, your book comes out in August, but it came out in March. Is that correct in Australia? Yeah, that's right. It came out at the very end of March, um, and I've been touring with it around Australia since then. That's what I was going to ask you next was, have you been touring? So how is that going? Oh, look, it's just wonderful because um, I'm not sure that you know, but my first novel, The Dictionary of Lost Words, came out two days after the whole world went into lockdown. (laughs) 
So I um, didn't get to tour with that book at all. In fact, I didn't I didn't meet a single reader for for maybe eighteen months. And so this is a very different experience. You know, the first experience was just zooming all the time. <laughs> um, we all got used to Zoom, uh, but this time, yeah, I've I've been on planes, I've been on buses, I've been on you know trains and in cars going to libraries and festivals and um, all sorts of wonderful bookshop events. And it's just been really wonderful to speak to readers. Uh, So I've loved it. That has to be doubly exciting since it wasn't very exciting for your first one to have to be online all the time. Yeah, that's true. But the benefits, I suppose, of the first one, you have to find silver linings, don't you, with the whole COVID experience. And the silver lining for me, I suppose, is that I did get to write the bookbinder. Um, and I really don't think I would have finished it, at least, uh, if not for COVID. So because I wasn't traveling around, I, I had all of that, the luxury of time just to spend in the in this book. That's a very good point. And I think the other silver lining is that we all learned all of these online platforms. And you probably reached a lot more readers worldwide than you would have potentially if we hadn't had COVID. Actually, yeah, you're so right, Cindy. So what happened, my book came out and this was my first, so this is the Dictionary of Lost Words. It was my first novel. So I was an unknown author. The book came out, as I said, two days after we all went into lockdown. And then bookshops and online book groups and so on did this wonderful thing, you know, this pivot. I love that new word that came up during COVID. They they pivoted to online events. And because my book had just come out, Suddenly, it was um, popular with online events um, in those first two, three, four weeks. So I had 250 people turn up to my first event about a week after the book had um, come out. And if I'd done that face-to-face in my local library, I would have had 20 people turn up and all of them would have been related to me or, (laughs) or good friends. So there was something um, wonderful about the reach actually, of um, online events, because it meant a lot of people who sometimes can't actually even get out to a physical event, maybe because they don't want to go out at night or they can't drive or they have a disability or for whatever reason, they have children, they, they can't leave. They could actually jump online and be part of these events in a way that they couldn't before. So you're right. I think the book actually did sort of meet more people <laughs> in the digital world than it might have in the real life world. I think that's definitely one of the positive things about COVID because you, like you said, you have to have silver linings. So one of the silver linings was that we were able to learn all of these online platforms, reach more people, engage with authors, engage with each other, because I can't even imagine if that hadn't been there while we were all sitting at home. So that is wonderful. And then you had such exciting news about that book because it was then subsequently picked by Reese for her book club. I know. This was just so out of the blue. And I I have to admit to you, there's so many good things have happened uh, with that first book um, that I feel a bit sheepish picking a favourite. But I have to admit that finding out that Reese's Book Club had chosen my book for its uh, May 2021 (laughs) book really was the most exciting thing ever because it wasn't something I expected. It wasn't something that you can I don't think you can even try to make it happen. It just happens. And and so it wasn't something I'd even dreamed of or anticipated or worked towards. And I just got this email and I have to admit, I originally thought maybe it was a some sort of scam. A prank. 
Yeah, yeah, uh, but it wasn't, and and it was so exciting. Uh, also, because it was the first Australian book to be chosen for her book club, uh, which was a huge deal here. Um, even though she's supported Australian writers in in the past in terms of producing films and th- and so on, she hadn't actually chosen a an Australian book before. So that was really exciting as well, and it makes a huge difference to um, sales and to the number of people who get to find out about the book and read it and if they like it, pass it on. So it was just wonderful. The interesting thing to me, because I follow all of those clubs closely, was that your book had been out for a little bit when it was picked. And that really struck a chord with me because you don't see that very often. Yeah, you're right, actually. And I earlier, I just said it was May 2021, but actually it was May 2022. Again, this is a COVID leftover, isn't it? You just sort of lose track of time. Because the book had been out uh, for nearly a year actually in the US and they timed the release of the paperback to coincide with with Reese's book club so uh that was yeah it was just fabulous um and again another reason why it was so unexpected i suppose because the book had been out for a little while definitely well it had to be so exciting and congratulations on that oh thank you thank you well let's dive into the book binder what i usually do is ask an author to give me a quick synopsis for those that haven't read it yet Sure. Uh, So the bookbinder is actually a companion to the Dictionary of Lost Words. And I say companion because it's not a prequel or a sequel. And in fact, you don't need to read the Dictionary of Lost Words to um, enjoy the bookbinder. They're quite separate stories, but they do speak to each other. I kind of think of them in some ways as sister books. Uh, They hold hands and one will enrich the other, whichever order you read them in. Um, and so the bookbinder essentially is set during the war years, um, World War I, from 1914 to about 1920. And it's about a woman called Peggy, a young woman called Peggy, who works in the bookbindery of Oxford University Press during the war. And she and her identical twin sister, Maud, live on a narrow boat on the Oxford Canal. And every day they walk into Jericho, which is the name of the neighbourhood, of Oxford, where Oxford University Press is. They walk into Jericho and walk into the press. And every morning she looks across the road to Somerville College, which is the Ladies College of Oxford University. And she wishes that she was a student there. But of course she can't be. She left school at 12 and she's destined to work in the bindery, really, just like her mother did, just like her grandmother did for the rest of her life. But war changes everything. And um, when war comes to Oxford, and refugees come to Oxford. There are opportunities for women all over England, in fact, because the men leave and the women have to stay to keep the country running. And so Peggy starts to think that maybe she can follow this dream. But, you know, things don't always turn out the way you want them to. <laughs> and you have the most beautiful book trailer on your website where you talk all about the book. I watched it like three times today. It made me want to read the book all over again. Thank you. And actually, that's that, that was a bit of serendipity because. I was in Oxford last June, June 2022, um, to do the last bit of research for this book. And it was wonderful because uh, we organized for, yeah, for someone to come and do a video of me while I was there. So I'm actually walking around the streets that my characters walk around and I'm at Oxford University Press and, um, you know, I have the university in the background and so on. So it was a wonderful thing to be able to do. It was just lovely to watch it. Like I said, I kept watching it. (laughs) Although I have to admit, you know, this is the behind the scenes section. I had just had a haircut, 
which I I didn't love. <laughs> so every time I see the video, I just see this haircut that I didn't love. You're like, could I not have gotten my haircut before I did this video? <laughs> I know. It's one of those moments that you just sort of think, why? Why? But I know why, because I thought, oh, I'll go into a hair salon and they'll blow dry my hair and make it all look wonderful. But, you know, um, I'm constantly disappointed when I come out of hairdressers. So, yeah, I should have known better. That's too funny. What I kept thinking while I was watching it is whenever I have to record myself, I have to take a million takes. Like it just takes me forever. So I was like, I wonder if she did this in one take or if it took 20 takes because it's very well done. <laughs> well, I had a professional doing most of it. That helps. <laughs> Except for the hair, the rest, the rest of the production values are quite good. <laughs> <laughs> well, how did you learn about these women at the Oxford University Press and then decide to write about them? Yeah, so again, because I was I was in Oxford when I got the idea for the book, because I was I was I've been to Oxford a number of times now to do research for the two books. And when I was in Oxford in 2019 doing the last bit of research really for the first book, The Dictionary of Lost Words, I was in the archives. I wanted to know a little bit more about the women who bound the books because there's a scene in the first book where a book is being bound. And so I asked the archivist for anything that he had that could tell me a little bit about the work that they did, the lives that they lived, all that sort of thing. And he brought all sorts of materials up to me, but really there was very little. There were a few photographs of women in the bindery folding the large sheets of paper that come off the press. And there was a beautiful black and white film that actually any of your listeners can look up online. I think it's on YouTube. It's called The Making of a Book at Oxford University Press, something like that. It was actually made in the 1920s. So it's quite um, close to the time that I was interested in. It's a black and white film, you know, with no, it's got like a music, uh, a soundtrack on, on the background beautiful black and white film. And it goes through every single process of making a book. And most of those processes are done by men, except for the folding of the pages and the gathering of the sections. And in this film, I saw a woman beautifully dressed, actually. She's even wearing slightly high heels. And she's she's moving along what's called the gathering bench. And the gathering bench was loaded up with sections from a book. And she moves along these sections and, and pulls them onto her arm until she's got an entire book. And the way she did it was so beautiful. She was almost dancing along this gathering bench. And I was so struck and taken by the image. But the first thing that popped into my head when I saw it was I wonder if she ever stops to read what she's gathering into her arms. And I realized that because of the work she was doing, there would be this imperative to do it as fast as possible. And if she did stop to read, a supervisor would come along and tell her that her job is not to read the words, but to bind them. And this is where I got the idea for the bookbinder. I suddenly had a character. I suddenly had a motivation for this character. And I had all sorts of obstacles, her, her gender, her class, the kind of job that she's doing. There were so many reasons why she wouldn't be allowed to read, even though that's all she wants to do. I thought that was such an interesting part of the story, because as a reader and a lover of words, it would be so hard for me to do that job without constantly wanting to read what was on the page. Yeah. And that's exactly why I had that thought, because, you know, there I was in the archives reading as much as I possibly could. And suddenly I had a real, an image of a real person doing her job in real time 
And and I suddenly knew that this woman, who in fact was in exactly the same place I was at that time, but at a different time in history. And I've only just thought of that, Cindy. You know, it's kind of made me (laughs) feel a little bit emotional, actually. It's the first time I've thought of it. I was in the same place that that woman was when that film was taken, but a hundred years later. And I was allowed to be reading all of those words that she might have wanted to read because things have changed. And of course, I say that because things have changed for women like me, but things haven't changed for many women, which I think is also why the idea of a woman being denied access to knowledge was still, I suppose, so intriguing to me because in fact, for some women that hasn't changed. If we think of women in Afghanistan as the the most extreme example, you know, women and girls in Afghanistan still can't go to university or school at the moment. And so there are women around the world and even in our own wealthy countries, you know, women whose circumstances mean that they haven't got access to education, particularly tertiary education. And so some of the things that I was exploring in the book are current for a lot of people. But yeah, at the time, I just tried to imagine myself in that woman's shoes, her beautiful high-heeled shoes. <laughs> and and I wondered how I would feel if I was told my job was to bind the books but not read them. It would be so difficult. Yeah. Yeah. And you so vividly describe everything. And we'll talk a little bit about some of the other topics in the book in a minute. But I just felt like I was right there with the women as they were binding and everything that else that was happening. Like you just really make it come alive. Is that something that you have to focus a lot on or is that just the way you write? I'd like to think it was the way I wrote, but no, I have to try hard to do that as well. I think I really love, I've always really loved being transported to another place when I read. So perhaps it's uh, just my own sensibility. And that comes through in my writing. I do like to create, I suppose, spaces in the stories. So in, in this book, it, it is the, the book bindery, but it's, it's also particularly Calliope, which is the name of the narrowboat that Peggy and Maud live on. I really wanted readers to be able to inhabit that place and the detail of that place. And I tried to do the same with the scriptorium in the first book, which is where all the words for the dictionary are being defined. But thank you for saying that because it is something that I try to achieve. And in trying to achieve it, I have to do a number of things. So I have to do my research, <laughs> which is one of the pleasures um, of, of writing historical fiction or and particularly fiction, which takes you away from your hometown. Um, so I did have to travel to Oxford on a number of occasions. I had to live there, actually, so that I could walk the streets and and smell the smells and and see see all of the the wildlife that live along the canal you know get a quality of light that might be there and it's very different to where you live and where i live the quality of light in oxford is is sort of a little more subdued <laughs> than the big open blue skies of where we live and so i did have to inhabit those places but the other thing i needed to do for this book in particular was learn how to bind a book Books aren't bound the way the characters in my book bind them anymore. Um, so the first time someone might touch a book in modern, in our modern times, the first time Bookbinder, the book that you um, have of mine, the first time that was touched by anyone was probably the person who opened the box that came from the, the printers. Uh, they opened the box and they took the books out of the plastic that they're wrapped in. 
that's the first hand that probably touches it because machines do everything now. But back in Peggy's day, 100 years ago, a book went through so many hands. Um, It went through um, many hands within the bindery. It was touched by the men who worked the printing machines. It was sewn. It was beaten. The spine was glued and beaten. You know, it was just touched by maybe 15 or 20 hands before it gets into the hand of the person who owns the book. And I loved this idea, but I needed to know what those processes felt like to do. And so I actually um, made friends with a bookbinder from the State Library of South Australia. And he had been an apprenticed bookbinder when he was 15. And at the time, the library had a men's side and a girl's side in the bindery, just like Oxford University Press. And there were more than 50 people working in the bindery at our state library at that time. And now there's just him. He's the only bookbinder left. And he was so generous with his time and spent a lot of time teaching me how to fold the pages, how to gather them, how to sew them. And actually, not long ago, he helped me bind my own book. So it's another little video that you can look online. You can just look up Pip Williams Binds Her Own Book. It's on YouTube. It goes for about three minutes. And I recommend it because it's just so beautiful, not because (laughs) I have to admit this, not because I did such a beautiful job, but because the videographer and Peter, who is my bookbinder friend, they just did such a marvelous job in um, helping me look good. (laughs) So it was just so wonderful, but so essential to get it right. If I hadn't handled the pages myself, if I hadn't sewn them myself, I wouldn't know what it felt like for my characters. And anyone who is a bookbinder, and there there are plenty of bookbinders out there these days because it's a bit like baking sourdough bread. It's it's sort of it's sort of become a craft that people have taken up for various reasons. Um, and of course, there are still some professional bookbinders around because books, old books, always need repairing, um, and that's that's quite a skill. But a lot of people are learning to bind books, and so I had to get it right because people will know if I've got it wrong. Well, I can't wait to go check out that video. And that had to be so engrossing and just captivating to be holding a book in your hand that you yourself bound. Oh, completely. Um, It's also kind of scary because I sort of feel like uh, uh, Peter was fantastic. I actually bound seven copies of the book. And, and, you know, at, at one point he left to go and have lunch and left me to sew one of my books. And I'd kind of, I just got a bit slack and he came back and I I hadn't done it quite right. And he made me undo it all and start again. I was just going to say, did you have to undo it all? He's like, pull all those stitches out and start over, Pip. <laughs> I did. And he said, if you were a real bookbinder, this is what will happen. So even that, I even got the reprimand that I would, that my, my characters would have got from their supervisor <laughs> had they sewn the book incorrectly. Truly authentic. Yeah, truly authentic. Yeah. Well, the other thing, and you mentioned Calliope, which I felt you also very vividly depicted. The other thing was what it was like to be in Oxford when all of these men were leaving, what it was like for them to be gone, and what it was like for them to come back. And I felt that I had read a lot of World War I and a lot of World War II stories, but I hadn't really read something that resonated so much with me for what it was like for those people left behind. Obviously, the women were stepping in and doing different jobs, helping with various things. I don't want to spoil anything. But just that feeling of what it was like to be at home waiting, that has stuck with me since I finished your book. 
Oh, thank you. I it was something I was really interested in too. There are a lot of novels about World War One, but on the whole, they tend to focus on men's experience, which is completely understandable, or on the experience of women who are waiting for someone to come home. Um, and I was really interested in the experience of women who are simply getting on with their lives and they don't really have skin in the game in that they don't have a father or a lover or a brother fighting um, at the front, someone who they're terribly anxious about and constantly waiting for. I didn't want this to be a story about waiting. I wanted it still to be a story about longing, but not waiting for someone to come home. And I wanted to explore the lives of women who needed to just get on with the job of living and working uh, and keeping the country running, essentially. And the other thing I was interested in was was refugees, because what happened during World War One is a lot of Belgian refugees arrived in England and in Oxford in particular. And I wanted to explore the experience of people who actually had to flee the war and end up in a country that wasn't their own. And so this story explores those things. And there are so there is so much that still happens on the home front when a war is going on. Uh, and yeah, I turned I turned to all sorts of not just research about the war because it's hard to find information about the experience, particularly of working class women, but women in general. It's hard to find information about them because it wasn't considered that important to keep. Um, so we often talk about women missing from history, uh, women's experiences missing from history. But actually, women's experiences are often also missing from the archives. So, so when me as a novelist or a historian or someone goes to look at the archives to try and tell a new story, uh, we are sometimes confronted with, with many gaps. And so what I did was turn to women's art because women made art during World War I. They wrote poetry, they wrote memoir, they wrote novels, and they painted, um, among other things. And so I turned to women's art to try and get a sense of what life was like during that time. And that was incredibly useful. But there was also gaps in that because the women who make art were middle or upper class women who had time and also money to make art. It's that classic line from Virginia Woolf, a woman needs um, a room of her own and 700 a year if she wants to make art. And that's absolutely true. And working class women didn't have either. And so I had to, I suppose, I had to extrapolate a little bit from, from what I found in the little I found in the archives, like that film I told you about and some photographs. I had to look at the women's art that I found. So Vera Britton's memoir, A Testament of Youth, also Virginia Woolf's diaries during World War I, and some visual art uh, made by women, particularly an Australian woman called Isabel Ray, who was a VAD in France. I turned to that to get a sense of what life might have been like. And then I turned to sociology. <laughs> but there were very few voices of working class women that I could find, though there were a few. And so I hope that I have kind of rendered an authentic uh, story here with my Peggy and Maud. Absolutely. And that's a very valid point that they weren't waiting on anybody, particularly themselves, but they were seeing how the town was impacted. So it wasn't so personal for them, but they could see different people at the bindery that were impacted when they lost a child or lost a spouse. It was just a different view than I felt like I had ever read. And it was so vivid. And I just really felt like I was dropped into the story. 
Oh, thank you. And I think the other thing that it does by not writing about someone who's waiting for someone to come home or grieving the loss of someone, what it allowed me to do is explore some of those possibilities that actually arise for women um, when there's a massive social upheaval like this. Because we're talking about a time in England when women still didn't have the right to vote. Uh, And there'd been a lot of debate and a lot of activism up until the beginning of the war. And in fact, there were many women in prison being force-fed at this time because of their um, suffragette activism. And when the war started, everything changed. So the suffragettes sort of stood back a bit, decided that they would not be so, so strident in their activism. They actually struck a deal with the government to back off in exchange for women being released from prison. And also the suffragettes were part of that white feather campaign. Um, where they would humiliate young men into joining up and and into fighting by pinning white feathers on their lapels if they weren't wearing a uniform. Um, so in fact, uh, many of these groups that at, you know before the war were uh, working against each other. During the war, they started to work together. But war changed more than that. You know, it created a whole lot of gaps in in the workforce because so many men, as you said, they left the country to fight. And suddenly everybody realized that the country would fall apart if women weren't allowed to step up into men's jobs and do what the men had done. And so suddenly there were all these opportunities for women, just in terms of social opportunities, work opportunities, status opportunities. And I was interested to explore some of that and also to explore how it was different for working class women and women of means. And so that's, yeah, that's where the story goes. Well, without spoiling anything, Peggy has a friend who you use to do that. The two of them are on opposite ends of the class structure and are able to come together, but then learn more about what it's like to be the other person. Yeah. And I, I, so Peggy's friend Gwen is a woman that she meets when she decides to volunteer in one of the many, many hospitals that sprung up in Oxford to treat returning soldiers. And it's one of those times where town and gown come together. So anyone who's listening, who's been to Oxford, uh, they might understand this term. Um, There's a huge difference between town and gown in Oxford. Town are the people who live and work in Oxford, essentially, and gown are the people who are associated with the university. And this division between these two groups of people has been there for hundreds and hundreds of years, and it still exists, Uh, but it certainly existed 100 years ago. And often the only time town and gown would ever interact would be in a servant master kind of um, situation. But the war changed that as well, because suddenly, you know, women were, were flocking to the hospitals to volunteer and, and they were bumping into each other, essentially. They were working alongside each other rather than for each other. And Peggy meets Gwen, who is actually a student at Somerville College, the college she would love to be a student at. And they strike up a really interesting relationship, though it's it's not always smooth sailing. Uh, she was a character I just really loved writing and really came to adore. But yeah, it's it's it really is a demonstration of you know the class differences. It's there's not just gender that Peggy has to deal with. There is also class. I really enjoyed their friendship. Yeah, I did too. I, I thought it was a fun friendship, but um, hopefully also realistic, realistic sort of frictions in there. Absolutely. 
One thing you did that I thought was totally fascinating, and I didn't completely connect it up till I got to the end of the book, and you wrote about it at the end, but each section is titled with a book that was actually published during this window of time from Oxford University Press. I loved that. Thank you. Yeah, this was this was um, a sort of structure that I had in my head before I even started. And I think, again, it probably happened when I was in the archives that same time when I saw the woman gathering the pages. While I was there, I was also looking at certain books that had been published by Oxford University Press. And one in particular was called Shakespeare's England. And it is essentially two volumes of essays uh, looking at what England was like during the time of Shakespeare. And there are about 30 or 40 contributors to this, to these two volumes. And every single one of them is a man writing about some aspect of England at that time. And this book gets like a mention in, in one line in my previous novel, The Dictionary of Lost Words, because it was in the newspaper. People were frightened that that Shakespeare's England was actually going to be delayed. The publication would be delayed and it wouldn't make publication in time for Shakespeare's, um, the anniversary of Shakespeare's death, uh, which was very important, uh, which was April 1916. And so that's when it was supposed to be published. And there was something in the paper about how the war was slowing down the production of this book. And that just gets a line in my previous book. But because I was looking at this volume, that's when I got the idea that, well, the people who were actually making this book are the people that I was interested in writing about. And suddenly I had a structure that I thought would be interesting, at least to me. <laughs> and you, you know, if you're if you're going to be spending three years on a novel, you have to be interested in it. So uh, you have to find things that that are going to keep you going. And so I was really interested to find out, well, what what are the books that my characters would have been binding at the time. And so when I wrote the book, I was very careful to include real books that were being bound at the time my characters were were enacting um, the work. And I came across some amazing uh, books. And what happened was as I came across the books that were being bound at the time, I would engage with them to a small or, or medium extent, just like my character Peggy would be engaging with them as as she folds their pages or or gathers their sections. I would read snippets just like she would read snippets. And every now and then I'd read something that would make me want to spend more time with that book or that text. And they're the books that became important to Peggy uh, because they had become important to me because they said something about the times that Peggy was living through. They, they were a reflection in a way, or they allowed Peggy to reflect on something. And so these books then became the headings of the different, there's five sections in the novel, and they become the, the headings or the sort of guiding book for each section of the novel. I loved that. Now we're going to get to one of my favorite things to chat about, and that is covers. And your cover will definitely be one of my favorite of the year. I just think it is stunning. And it's a little different than the Australian New Zealand one. So I just wanted to talk with you a little bit about your covers and what you thought about them and the whole process for coming up with them. Yeah, covers are fascinating, aren't they? And I, I am a sucker for a cover. So I know how important they are, even though I know 
you know, I know that there's so many people behind the design of a cover and they are all thinking, how are we going to get a reader in? I know, I know it's like an advertisement, but I still, because I'm such a tactile book person, I do love the real thing. I love to hold it. I love to feel it. And covers these days aren't just, you know, they're not just color and image. You do, you can feel the design very often. You know, you can feel a kind of slightly softer part of the, in terms of texture. And then sometimes there's a little bit that glitters or there's a little bit that is um, smooth and shiny. And I really love the feel of covers as well as the look. But this cover, I really, I really love. The books in particular are so kind of, I suppose, resonant of the story. Books are really what the story is all about. It's all about access to books and knowledge. And I love how the designer has really, you know, built the cover around around the books. But with the beautiful backdrop as well, and then it ties in so well to the Dictionary of Lost Words. It's a great marketing technique, but as well as that, it's also just so cool because you pull up one book, you pull up the other, you know they go together, but they're different enough looking that they're separate books. It's just very cool the way they do that. Yeah, I completely agree. There is something, particularly because these books are companion books, And it's not, you know, there's some books, there's a series of books where, you know, it's got the same author. And so the books all have a similar style because it's got the same author. But in this case, the books have, there's something that um, links them together. It's like they have the same DNA. You know, you can tell they're part of the same family, but you can absolutely tell them apart as well. And I really enjoy how designers do that. And they are doing, you know, there's something tricksy about it, isn't there? Because what they're doing, I suppose, is with the new cover, they're reminding you of the other book, but they're still putting this book front and center. I think your sibling reference is perfect. They're part of the same family, but they're not twins. Yeah, yeah. And it's a good and it's a good reference too, because Bookbinder is all about twins and sisters. <laughs> I was just thinking that. I was like, and that really ties in well. And it's called the Bookbinder of Jericho in Australia and New Zealand. Do you know why they decided to include the Of Jericho over there, but here they decided just to do the bookbinder? Yeah, so the original title is the bookbinder of Jericho because Jericho is the name of the neighbourhood where Oxford University Press is. Right. And it's where the characters live. Uh, So so they're from Jericho. But obviously Jericho is also the name of a place in the Middle East, which I think for some some places is a little bit more confusing than it is in others. So in the UK, they they are more familiar with Jericho as a neighbourhood of Oxford. <laughs> um, and in Australia, it seemed to work. So some places are changing the Jericho reference either to Oxford um, and others are just dropping it. So yeah. So, you know, every territory that a book is published has its particular particular understandings of the world that uh, sometimes titles have to change in order to uh, hit the right tone. That's a very valid point. And I can understand that in the US, keeping it the bookbinder. Yeah. So the title in the UK and Australia is the same, and it's different here. Is the cover in the UK the same as the Australian cover? No. So very similarly, um, I suppose these are all marketing decisions, aren't they, in the end? Um, so the cover in the UK is incredibly different. Um, so Australia and the US, the covers, I suppose, you know, they are similar. They have a similar DNA. 
but the cover in the UK is a kind of sky blue and it has uh, a narrow boat on the front cover and the twin sisters standing at the front of the narrow boat. Uh, so it's a gorgeous cover as well, but a very different type of cover. And in many ways, I suppose it makes sense because the canals and narrow boats are a very uh, common feature of England as they would be of other places in Europe, but they're not so common in Australia or the US. We don't have a canal system in either of our countries, I don't think, um, or narrow boats. And so that, that, that image wouldn't be quite so familiar. But in England, it's definitely familiar. And so that's what they were trying to conjure. Okay, I'm going to have to look that one up because I have not seen it. I've seen the Australian and I've obviously seen ours and they are very similar, but I'm going to have to look up the UK one. Absolutely. It's so different. It's very different. That must be such a fun thing when you have these books coming out all these different places and to just line all the covers up for each place and see how different or similar they are. It is. It's really interesting. And then to do what we're doing now and try to figure out, you know, why did one country have this cover and another country have that cover? And yeah, and try to sort of understand some of the cultural differences that lead to these decisions. And these decisions are always decisions of the publisher. The writer rarely has much input into covers, though we're always kind of consulted. We don't have the final say. Right. Sometimes a cover will be selected. It'll get all the way down to the sales department and they'll be like, oh, no, thank you. And then it goes back and starts over. So the whole cover process is fascinating. And then to talk about all the different territories is even more fascinating. So they clearly know what they're doing because it's their job, but it is interesting to try to dissect it all. Yeah, that's right. And it's nice to be involved in terms of, uh, you know, just a final kind of comment. But I also like that these are people who do know what they're doing. They have certain expertise that I don't. So <laughs> I'm very glad they don't leave it in my hands. <laughs> Can you imagine? You'd be like, hmm, here's what I've come up with. <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> and then I'd have to live with the consequences. Exactly. You're like, is there no one that can help me? <laughs> well, before we wrap up, I would love to hear what you've read recently that you really liked. Oh, yeah. I So I'm a big reader. I'm a very, very slow reader. Uh, so I listen to a lot of books and read books at the same time. So I've usually got a couple on the go. But recently, I have read a few books that I thought I'd share. One is Small Things Like These by Claire Keegan. She's an Irish writer. She writes short stories and novellas, really, I suppose. And she's an exquisite writer. Her writing is really, really exquisite, you know, very powerful. It packs a punch uh, for so few, so few pages. So Small Things Like These by Claire Keegan. The other book that I had so much fun with was The Seven Moons of Marley Almeida by Sheehan Karanatilika. He won the Booker Prize for this and I adored it. I listened to it and I would recommend listening to it because there are a lot of Sri Lankan names in there that if I was reading it, I possibly, dreadfully, would sort of skim over some, some words that I would find difficult to pronounce. But listening to it, I think you you just get the full impact of the beautiful language of the, the writer and all of the wonderful words and names that are part of the story. It's quite challenging in many ways, but it's a, it's a ghost story. It's about some pretty heavy topics, but the way it's written makes it very accessible. And I, I just loved it. 
And the other one I'd recommend is Horse by Geraldine Brooks. So Geraldine Brooks is an Australian writer, but she lives in the US. Um, and I adore her writing. She writes a lot of historical fiction and Horse is her latest book. And it's really fabulous. Totally recommend it. I loved Horse and I got to interview Geraldine Brooks about it. So that was just so exciting. And another fascinating thing about the horse, Lexington, that's the source of of horse, is that there's a nonfiction book coming out this week in the U.S. about that same horse. And they both were working on it for about the same period of time without realizing that each one was writing about Lexington. And so Geraldine Brooks has blurbed it. And I've interviewed Kim about Lexington. And it was just so interesting. And there's such a great pairing with the nonfiction story about Lexington and then Geraldine Brooks' historical fiction about it. Oh, how fabulous. Yeah, kind of fun to have it come at it from two ways. Yeah, that's really wonderful. And I think for readers, it's wonderful when that serendipity happens. Something that I always recommend, whenever I talk about my first book, The Dictionary of Lost Words, when people say, how did you get the idea for it? I always mention Simon Winchester's book, The Professor and the Madman. It's called The Surgeon of Crowthorn in Australia and the UK. So there's another example of, of um, a book changing its title. But it's called The Professor and the Madman in the US, uh, and it's a, a nonfiction book about the editor of the Oxford English Dictionary and one of the people who um, sent in in words with examples of how they'd been used. Very, very interesting. And that was the kind of kickstart to my um, novel. And I love that a reader can kind of read a fiction but then also go back and read a nonfiction about the same topic. and. And they just get a much deeper understanding of, you know, a time in history. And I think it's wonderful. So I love that. I love knowing that there's this book about Lexington. That's terrific. I think that is so fun to pair books together like that. I have a Patreon community for my podcast. And one of the new series that I've launched is fiction and nonfiction pairings. And I do two sets of books a month. And it's just so much fun to even find those connections and then to get to talk about them. Because I think people really do like reading the fictional story. Usually it's more fast paced, you know, there's an actual story and then pairing it with the nonfiction where you're getting some of the details that you wouldn't necessarily get in the fictional accounting. I totally agree. And as we're talking, I'm trying to think, oh, I wonder what the nonfiction pairing would be for the bookbinder. I'd love, you know, I'd love you if you have, um, if you have people who you connect with online, it would be so great to see if anyone can come up with a nonfiction pairing. I'd love to know what it would be. Or maybe I'll find one and I'll do it as part of my Patreon series and then also share it with you. And on Claire Keegan, I have small things like these on my bedside table, but I read Foster last fall and I loved it. Have you read her book, Foster? I haven't, but I was just today, I've written it down on my to-do list. Um, I'm going to go to the bookshop and, and have a look at what's on offer from her because I really want to read more of her work. Her short stories also are just extraordinary. And so, yeah, I want to read a little bit more. I think she's the sort of writer who can teach you how to write. <laughs> well, and she just does like you do in this book, where she so vividly brings the characters to life that you feel like you're right there with them. It's another book that I just continue to think about. And those end up being my favorite types of books when months later, I'm still thinking about them. Yes, I agree. I agree. I think we would probably have a very similar taste in reading. I think that's right. Well, I've absolutely loved chatting with you, Pip. Thank you for taking the time to come on the Thoughts from a Page podcast. Cindy, it's been such a pleasure. And thank you so much for inviting me. You've got questions. We've got answers. Business leadership, ownership, and sales can be challenging. 
Tune into the Accelerate Your Business Growth podcast to learn from the world's experts. Join me, your host, Diane Helbig, as I chat with people who have expertise in various areas of business. You'll enjoy the lively conversations that are focused on providing you with the ideas, tips, and suggestions you need to realize greater success. Get what you need for your business when you need it from the people who have the answers. Accelerate Your Business Growth is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and is available on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. I would love to connect with you on Instagram or Facebook, where you can find me at Thoughts From a Page. If you enjoy the show, please consider joining my Patreon group to access bonus content and support the podcast. If you have a moment to rate the show or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts, I would really appreciate it. It makes a big difference. And please tell all of your friends about Thoughts From a Page. Word of mouth does wonders to help the show grow. The book discussed in this episode can be purchased at my bookshop storefront, and the link is in the show notes. I hope you'll tune in next time. Hi there. I'm Heather Drago. And I'm Sarah Saunders. We host the podcast, That's a Hard No, about saying no and setting boundaries. So you can become that true and empowered you that this world needs. Saying no isn't just okay. It's the key to living an authentic, fulfilling life. I'm a licensed professional clinical counselor. So while this podcast is in no way a replacement for one-on-one therapy, I suppose I know what I'm talking about. I'd say so. We talk about learning to say no and set healthy boundaries and how it impacts mental health, physical health, relationships, parenthood, and more. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit our website, hardnopodcast.com. We're here to help you find your no and say it unapologetically. That's a hard no.